State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help with funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's good, everybody? It is our favorite time of the year here at the Black Effect. We're heading down to Atlanta for the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival. And we're not going alone. Nissan is back as our partner, and they're continuing their Pitch Your Podcast Lounge at the festival, where you'll have the opportunity to pitch your podcast idea live and share it with the Black Effect team. So get those podcast ideas ready. And remember, you can count on Nissan to dial up the thrill in your adventures, no matter where life takes you. Visit blackeffect.com slash podcast festival for more details. Welcome to Checking In with Michelle Williams, a production of iHeartRadio and The Black Effect. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am truly, truly excited. Listen, this next guest can definitely entrance you with their talent and transport your emotions to another level. And he's coming up next here on Checking In. I get really excited when we talk to musicians, singers, writers, everyone's creative that comes on my podcast, but I'm extremely excited about this next guest. He's an American jazz trumpeter, composer, producer, and vocalist. Yes, he's a Grammy Award nominee, three-time Echo Award nominee, as well as a Theodore Presser Award recipient. Please welcome Theodore the, wait a minute, not Theodore. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. And I said Theodore because I just said Theodore Presser. And right. knowing that Theo is short for Theodore. <laughs> but if you wanted people to call you Theodore, that's what you'd go by. So y'all welcome once again, Theo Croker. Let's go. <laughs> so I love jazz, but I'm sure in order to have played jazz, you had to start off playing I don't know. Did you start playing in school? Because, you know, in school, we just play the American standards. Yeah. I mean, I came from a musical family. So, like, really, I started off in the bathtub with chopsticks or, you know, the dinner table with silverware. But when I started getting training, it was in middle school and it was in band class for trumpet. Yeah, absolutely. They taught the whole class together at one time. It wasn't like I got something special. <laughs> no, right, right, right. And I'm so glad that you talked about how you grew up in a family of musicians. Your family history is jazz. Yeah. We're going to start with your grandfather, okay. Doc Cheatham, who played trumpet with Chick Webb and others in the 1920s. Oh, yeah. I think obviously in the 1920s, I don't know was if it was called jazz, if there was a name for it, was it it's <laughs> like most authentic form? You know, it's interesting because through all my research, I find that all the musicians would call it black music and they actually didn't like the title jazz jazz was kind of like a title given to them because they were being marginalized and kind of put as the subculture and then that turned into like most things in this country that turned into then a popular phrase for marketing 
Right. So it's like, so they really just, for them, it was black music. You know, it was their pop music of the day. It was what they were playing in the clubs where people would dance is what they were playing in some of the after hour places where you do all kind of things. And it was really just, you know, the music of the community. Yeah. And the yeah. culture. Jazz, bebop, all of that. It's its just something, one of my favorites that I just love to sometimes I go down a rabbit hole on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Or I find myself, um, <laughs> y'all don't judge me, but yes, NPR, certain NPR stations that have conversations with jazz musicians or historians or just play that music where it sounds like you can still hear the striations of the vinyl or it's oh, just yeah. really, really, really authentic. But like you said, as far as marketing, I'm glad you mentioned that there had to be a title for quote unquote marketing. Yes. Jazz is along the lines of when we started hearing words like rock and roll, that was when the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, that's when they started taking black music from Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Bo Diddley and turning it into something that then became pop so that it could separate it from the black musicians. Because, you, you know, mm-hmm. America was segregated also in its listening and marketing format. So they wanted to market this music to non-black people by having non-black people perform it. So they had to create these titles to separate them. Wow. Wow. It's kind of deep, <laughs> but it goes along the lines of a lot of the stuff that we're now realizing and facing about our history. My question is, though, you grew up in the hip hop era. So why trumpet when so many other people around you were listening to other music? Why the trumpet? Well, as much as hip hop, I was always influenced by like the massive sounds that you would hear from bands, big, big bands, Latin bands, orchestras especially orchestras used to blow me away as a child in in movie soundtracks, Mm -hmm. you know, like the the score. So I always loved how multifaceted that was. I I didn't really hear it as genres. I mean, the hip hop albums I loved, like uh, Wyclef Jean's The Carnival and Outkast Equipment. I like it's so orchestral, everything that's good. It's so full. and, and, Mm -hmm. And that's the trumpet just felt I just loved the way it looked. I loved the way it sounded. My older brother played the trumpet. And, you know, as a younger sibling, I wanted to do everything he did. My grandfather was a trumpet player, which I was aware of, but wasn't so, you know, hip to until I started playing. I took to it so quickly and so naturally. And for me, it was just a gateway to all the other instruments I learned and to like learning about music. And now, I mean, the trumpet is just second nature for me. And and my, my exploration is more musical now. Yeah. You probably hear people say, well, you know, my sister played the trumpet. So, yes, (laughs) my sister played the trumpet. I have a cousin who was an amazing saxophone player, which made me pick up the saxophone to play. He was my he was my everything. And his tone was so amazing on the saxophone. Mm -hmm. And with the trumpet, there is a thing with tone as well. So you don't sound like you're just. How do I say this respectfully? <laughs> like a wounded duck? <laughs> yes, because everybody that picks up the instrument, something with tone is either you got it or I don't know if it's perfected or. Mm. Oh, yes, it takes time. I mean, the trumpet is is a very difficult instrument to begin with. It takes a good year or two years before you actually get the facility to be able to play a lot of things and enjoy it. 
Okay. And, and yeah, it takes a while and then it takes years to develop the tone that you want because the instrument is just reacting to the vibration of your lips. It doesn't have a sound built into it. It doesn't have the energy or ability to create anything. You just you literally put it on your lips while they vibrate and that gets amplified into the, it makes the whole trumpet mm. vibrate into what you're hearing. So it's a lot of like playing long notes. I mean, I spent hours, days at a time for decades playing long notes as long as I can, as beautifully as possible with beautiful beginnings and endings and the intonation in the middle and adding the air, taking the air out loud, soft, all that kind of thing. <laughs> that yeah. way, that way, when you play, you can be very dynamic and you can like use all those elements of your sound to, you know, inject into the music. Okay. There was a guy in Chicago because in church you have your, to me, your basic gospel instruments in church. Mm -hmm. You got the organ, drum, yep. tambourine. Yep. You're going to get somebody on a tambourine. Yeah. But then I loved this trumpeter. He would come to our church because he was like in the band. He played at his church in Chicago. His name is Rod Magaha. Okay. That's a cool name. Cool name. Cool musician and trumpeter. And I thought, how cool was it to see him just vibing out with the other musicians in church? But then there are times he would come just as a special guest and he would literally not only blow the trumpet, but he would blow us away. Wow. And I'm saying that to say, I think of how... I never knew I'd meet Whitney Houston and I did eventually Wow! or how my aunt and cousins were like my Whitney Houston. Mm -hmm. And then you have actual trumpeters that you could see in their form. So, you know, Rob Magaha, I mean, you're never going to meet Miles Davis, but when you think of the greats and when you think of your grandfather mm -hmm. um, who played trumpet, you're like, wow, but I get to see a rebirth somehow mm. of another musician through someone like Rod Magaha. So when I right. knew I was going to interview you, it's like, I wonder if you had heard of him, but I know there are tons of trumpet players in this I haven't. world. I did, I did write it down though, so I will be looking Rod right Rod Magaha. I got I would, you. I'm not even going to attempt to spell the I'll find last it. <laughs> name, but I absolutely love him. And talking about the greats, are you often asked about Miles Davis and if he was an influence to you at all? I often am. I mean, comparisons are good and bad, but I'm often likened to Miles Davis. Miles Davis haunted me in my dreams for like two years especially during the, the pandemic, you know, I would have these dreams or get these shivers and Miles would be whispering in my ear, like, just play the melody, you know, in his voice. I can't even imitate him, but just play the melody, just play prettier than everybody else. And it stays with me. And, and that's the thing I take from Miles the most is to have a sound that just cuts through anything that's going on, but pleasantly. Like I, I like to have a sound that you can listen to for hours on end and it doesn't fatigue your ears. Yes. And that is very melodic. Whatever I do play, it's more about serving the melody and the music itself than showing off my ability. And that to me is, that's very miles S to me. That's what I take from mine. Yes, yes. You know? It's like you don't play everything that you can do. No, never. But in the inside <laughs> of you, you're like, I can really kill this, but. Oh, yeah. We can, we can body it, but I, I feel like. But you I body feel, it by sticking to the melody too, though. Let's not right. get that twisted. 
I mean, it's all about a melody. It's all about all the music is about a melody. And and I I want people to leave after hearing me play. I want them to leave just unable to get melodies out of their their mind. Okay. Even the ones that I when I'm improvising, I'm not playing a solo or chord changes. I'm playing melodies. I'm building melodies in the moment for people to take with them and to put their own story to. Amazing. So as we're talking about building melody, I see on your Instagram that you are, I mean, deep into music theory, which by the way, it's like, you have to be, I would think to be as profound as you are on an instrument, or at least you should be because now everybody didn't read music. Some people could just pick up an instrument and start playing it. But I also find that when you can just play by ear and then when you start reading music or get lessons, all of that has to be stripped away, apparently. And you have to start with the foundation. Like teachers don't care that you can riff and do all these things on instruments when you don't Mm. know the basics and the foundation. Right. I I mean, you know, there's a lot of truth in, in all of that. I think my philosophies now are a little... I try to demystify everything theoretically to the simplest form that it can be. I try to demystify a melody and a rhythm or a key to the simplest thing it can be because it's simple. It's just math. And well, flag on the play. (laughs) (laughs) For, For me, I didn't honestly learn music theory and how to read music well. Until nearly my fr- halfway through my freshman year of, of university mm. and everything before that just relied on my ear. And 20 years later, I'm still relying more on my ear than what the theoretical explanation of something is. Because, again, I mean, the word theory itself means a possible idea or solution. It doesn't mean the definitive this is what it has to be. So I don't think an artist or musician has to have the verbatim knowledge of explaining their music theoretically. I think, you know, like you take an artist like Prince, they say Prince didn't read or write music, but Prince knew what key he was in. He knew what kind of chord he was playing. He never sounded wrong. So it's like, he's still playing music. I I don't know if he were to study theory, would that change anything for him? It really just comes to help explain what it is you're doing so you can explain it to somebody else in your band or like change the key or you know find something new i mean yeah. i i love the theoretical process but i don't depend on it <laughs> i don't depend on it at all mm. Hey everyone, I am so excited. The Black Effect is live. This April 27th, the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival is headed to Atlanta's very own Pullman Yards. Last year was incredible, and this year will be even more thrilling, especially with Nissan coming back along for the ride. Nissan is returning with some empowering activations to support Black excellence in the STEAM fields. Have a podcast idea you've been eager to share with the culture? Well, Nissan is back with a Pitch Your Podcast Lounge. You'll have the chance to record your podcast idea and have it shared with a Black Effect podcast network team. But that's not all. Nissan is taking the stage to spotlight some of the HBCU scholars from their own Thrill of Possibility Summit, Nissan's action-packed weekend of community building, mentorship, 
and professional development for HBCU scholars pursuing professions in STEAM. The Black Effect Podcast Festival is the event to be at. You won't want to miss this because no matter where life takes you, Nissan will dial up the thrill of your adventures. Visit blackeffect.com forward slash podcast festival for more details. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, along with funding programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. As far as young people today and jazz... What is your take on the impact of jazz today? Are you seeing much of an impact that jazz has today or as much as it had in years past? That's a difficult question to answer. I think what I've realized about what they call jazz and those of us that that play that style or study music in that manner is really what that means today is that we are preparing ourselves as musicians to be able to, to exist and contribute to any musical situation regardless of the genre and i feel like that's a great thing because it it prepares you to live in all these different worlds because so many artists are taking little pieces out of out of the world we come from and building entire you know oratorios off of it and entire projects off of a riff or an idea and so it's important to continue the language because that is the black american language uh, musical language. It, it is what they call, again, jazz. So it exists in everything from a Solange album to Drake's new dance album. It's all in there. It is everywhere. And again, you're talking to someone. I love all genres of music besides gospel. I think jazz is probably the next for me. And I know you did a residency at the Blue Note, New York City. Yeah. You just wrapped that up. How was that? It was great. We sold out last night. I mean, people loved it. I mean, it felt good. The energy was so great. It was great to be. It's just great to be there. I mean, it's such a legendary club. I went there for the first time at 12 years old and sat in the front row. And I remember being like, I'm going to be on this stage one day like this is. So it was just kind of full circle for that. You know, 20 some years later to be there was like, ah, I just felt unreal, like shivers. <laughs> so at the age of 12, you sat there and said, I'm going to be on this stage one day. Yeah. When I was 11, 12 years old, I decided I was going to play music for the rest of my life like that. That was going to be my focus. Wow. That's so good. <laughs> I always stress about the power of what we say and how oh, you're, absolutely. Never, you're never too young to speak the things that you want uh-huh. Uh, and the things that you want to do. Your dad was a teacher and a civil rights activist who worked with Martin Luther King, Martin Luther did, King yeah. Jr. in the 60s. Had that affected your music journey at all? I guess in a way it affected my musical journey because we were raised to be very open-minded and tolerant of culture and race and people. And we were taught about race. My father was a black man. 
and my mother is mixed. So we, they had to teach us about race so that we could survive mm-hmm. and, and, you know, live and not be raised in a, in a place of fear. So I wasn't raised in a place of fear, but I think his contributions to, to like communities was very big for both of my parents were very, very much. My mother was John Henry Clark's TA for four years in grad school. And so they were very much about empowering the community to be educated. Okay. So the way I was raised wasn't just my mother and father raised me and my brother. There were other young people in our house from all ages and the high schools and the middle schools that my parents worked at joining our family all the time to get that experience of an open table of an open mindedness. And they were students of all kind of backgrounds and races and cultures. So Mm. I think that how that translated musically is that it gave me a very open mindset. It kind of connected it to a community for me. Yeah. Open mindset, community, and other cultures, which brings me to the next question of your time where you lived and played uh, jazz in China. Oh, yes. For about seven, <laughs> seven about years. About seven years, yeah. I mean, that was crazy. <laughs> So you discovered that that was crazy. I was going to ask you, so what did you discover about playing jazz in a place where not only were you in a foreign country, but was jazz foreign in that country? What's really interesting is that when I got to Shanghai and started to play it, I mean, I was very young, I was 22, and it was not what I expected the audience to be or how I expected it to be because I had only known it through jazz clubs in America, which would be mostly old people very stuffy, very suit musicians wore suit and ties and very, it's very like just kind of old thing. And then jazz was its own separate thing. When I got to Shanghai the first night, the club was packed. It was people mostly standing up. We played one club six nights a week for six months. Which was, was that the House of Blues? It was the House of Blues and Jazz there. And it was owned okay. by a um, TV celebrity who actually was the voice of Darth Vader. So also it would be, Chinese celebrities there, foreign celebrities, like, you know, it was like, it was a scene. And the first thing I real I learned on the first night, because our first night was the last night of the previous band, which was a blues band, because the owner loved blues and he loved jazz. And I realized that the concept of jazz in China meant black music. Mm. From Stevie Wonder to Billie Holiday to Michael Jackson to Outkast, that was jazz to them. So I realized very quickly, these people expect us to be playing all sorts of Black music. They're not expecting to just hear what we as Americans label jazz. Mm. So that that immediately forced me to open up and be like, okay, I, I need to do other things and start implementing other things into my vision of this music in order to reach these people deeper. And it was a new thing to them. So they they didn't see all these separation of genres that we have overseas. It was just if it was black and the band was black and then they wanted to hear all kind of black music. And that to them was jazz, <laughs> which was really cool for me because it got me out of just thinking I had to do things one kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do notice and I know I am friends with a lot of your colleagues in jazz. I was able to reconnect with Robert Glasper the other day awesome. at Hollywood Bowl and some other folks. And so I can imagine y'all's journeys, especially incorporating hip hop into what's considered jazz music. I mean, returning hip hop to jazz. Yes, returning hip hop to jazz, which, by the way, is absolutely brilliant. 
And so the looks on people's faces, especially when you're talking about going to Asia and to China and to Tokyo and playing the jazz clubs there, like to my listeners, there's a house of blues, like you said, in China. There's yeah, is it Blue Note. Is that Tokyo? There is two Blue Notes in China now, one in Beijing and one in Shanghai. And there's two in Japan. There's yeah. one in Tokyo, Nagoya. Yeah, they're they're popping up. Popping up because we know of the Blue Note, the legendary Blue Note, New York City. But then is Yoshi's and Blue Note the same in Oakland or is that different? No, they're they're different. Different. They're different. Okay. I didn't know if one was just like Yoshi's Blue Note or just Blue Note, but Yoshi's is not. No, there's also a Blue Note in Milano, which is one of my favorites. And there's one in Hawaii. There's one in Brazil. I've never been to the one in Sao Paulo, but oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we need to go. <laughs> you'll be there. You'll be there. And I'm just letting my listeners know, like, please, please get into the Blue Note. And so for Theo to have had a few nights residency at the Blue Note is absolutely major. I mean, the jazz greats and legends play at the Blue Note. Yep. You have an album, your seventh. You don't yes. look like you about past 17. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm well past 17. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, though. Talking about his seventh studio album, it is called Love Quantum. That's all about different kinds of love. Yes. Explain that about the different kinds of love and how it's played in your album. Well, I, I realized while making the previous album, before Love Quantum, I realized uh, when I was searching, I did a lot of soul searching during the pandemic, as most people, I hope did. And um, I found that like I had this lack of self-love for myself, that I was always so focused on outwardly pleasing people, outwardly pleasing uh, situations, outwardly making things work as we're raised to do function in society. And I realized that in my relationships, friendships and romantic relationships, I was looking for this love that I could have been giving myself the whole time. Oh. And so I learned to love myself on a quantum level, which is the smallest, most smallest amount of something you can get to. If you break down an atom on a quantum level, you get to like what they call a quark, et cetera, et cetera. So I found that like I can only outwardly love and I can only receive love on the level that I'm able to generate my own self-love. Wow. So this was the inspiration for the album. I was like, okay, let's look at what I understand about love now. Like I can love somebody because look at how I love myself. Look at how I take care of myself. Look at how I talk to myself in my own mind. Like, do you acknowledge yourself every day? Do you look in the mirror and tell yourself you're beautiful and that you love what you're doing and love what you're creating and that you believe in yourself? Like things like that have empowered me to be able to then share that excess love to other people and not expect or need anything in return from them. Therefore, wow. whatever I would receive from them would be extra. Come on, somebody. <laughs> so do you find yourself attracting better relationships? Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, naturally, as a performer or entertainer, people think they are attracted to us because they're attracted to your persona of you. But I find it very easy now to tell what level somebody is on with themselves and their own love with a simple conversation or interaction. And when you're beaming love and light out into the universe, that will bounce back to you. Wow. So do you think that your playing is different? before you had this revelation to how you play now? 
I think there were some parts of myself in my playing that I, I knew were there but didn't acknowledge. And that was I knew that everything I had to play had to come from a, a place of honesty deep within myself and expression. And so when I tapped into loving myself, I started to, you know, before I would play, tell myself, hey, whatever you think it is, you're not good enough at playing. Stop telling yourself that. It's enough. You're here. Wow. You're at the blue note. It's enough. It's sold out. Obviously, these people want what you have. So just let it out. And that got me out of my head of even thinking so much about what I'm about to play or about to do or how I think I have to do it and simply just creating and letting it out. That's so good. They'd be like, Theo, your notes are sounding brighter. <laughs> They're filled with love and light. You know, and I was going to say, <laughs> if I were to be sitting in the audience, because like, he loved himself now, y'all. He wasn't loving himself like he should. He knows he needs to love himself. Exactly. <laughs> and charging each and every note and line and interaction with that love. Ooh, come on, come <laughs> on. Okay, okay, so now I'm like, okay, what's the next album title? But we got to get through this album because it includes collaborations with some of my favorites, Wyclef Jean, Jamila Woods, and Jill Scott. Yes. She was on my podcast some months ago. But I love that in To Be We, Jill explores love and divine femininity. Mm-hmm. How is it to work with Jill? Was that your first time? That was my first time working with her. We became friends. One day she had asked somebody in her band, a trumpet player, Farnell Newton. She had asked him, you know, who are some new like people I can listen to? And he turned her on to an album that I had done in 2016 called Escape Velocity. And then she tweeted it. I woke up one day and she had tweeted my album and she had said, this is the only thing that puts my son to sleep. So years later, we connected during the pandemic. Again, everybody was able to slow down and we started DMing and she started telling me how much she actually loved my music. And at first I thought, okay, she's being cool. She liked the song or something. But when I came to finally work with her after like months of us talking back and forth and things like that, I came to realize that her and her family were like fans. You would go to her home and she would be listening to my albums like it's on their regular rotation. And that blew my my spirit while I was like, wow, somebody that I have been influenced by my entire life. Like, you know how old heads like an old head like my father. I gave him Jill Scott's first CD, The Words and Sounds, Volume One, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, CD players were new for that generation. So in the car. We got him a CD player. And if you went on a three hour road trip with him, you listened to that CD three times. <laughs> there was no, that was it. He played the Jill Scott out. And, and so like her sound is just embedded in me and embedded it in my musical DNA. Even, you know, before I even played trumpet, it was like that. So I, I had written something and the entire time I wrote it and recorded it and produced it, I knew it was for her. So when I finally sent it to her to be like, this is just an idea I have. Let me know how it makes you, how it feels. She was like, we need to talk on the phone. And then she's like, this is beautiful. Nobody ever sends me something so cinematic and so complete. I'm going to write to this. And when I'm ready, I'm going to call you to come to me and we'll record it together. I love this story. Like to hear that she is a supporter of yours, right? But you also go way back in supporting this amazing Black woman as well. Just the way we built such a rapport before we ever recorded 
we would just talk on the phone like human beings and talk about love and talk about light and talk about our energies and talk about the industry uh, from a creative standpoint and the, the exchanges and the inspirations. And it still blows my mind to get a call from Jill Scott just being like, hey, sending you love. I had this great idea about this musical concept. What are your thoughts on that? And it's like, wow, like Jill Scott's just conversing with me about creativity. Like it's it's so inspiring and so beautiful. And you really hear that in the track. It's really, it's about our uh, interaction in that yes. way and about our energy together. And it's, it's totally kindred. It's not contrived in any way. It's beautiful. One day, Jill Scott looked at me. It's like she pierced my soul one day. And she said, I don't know, we were walking to our seats or something. I feel like it was the Grammys. And she literally like turned around and looked at me and she said, are you okay? Mm. That time I'm a fish out of water to all this. And I was like, oh my gosh, she sees me. Oh my gosh, let me. <laughs> it made me tell that story because when you were talking about during the pandemic, how y'all were having conversations, you were talking about love, you were talking about energies. And she felt mine from behind and turned around mm-hmm. and was like, I was like, oh my gosh. So I just always love that story about her. It was like she was the person saying, it's going to be okay. You're mm-hmm. going to be okay. Did you find that as well? You find that with other peers, period, in music. I do. I mean, with Jill Scott specifically, she's one of the most powerful, light and love-filled human beings I've ever interacted with. And I, I've I've known Rumple Cheese and gurus when I lived in China, like Tibetan gurus and things like that. And and she she had that same kind of energy. Like around her, you can only be yourself. <laughs> Because if you don't, she's going to see right through it. And I never at any point around her felt like I had to be anything other than me. Like true, truly me. I didn't feel like I was sitting in front of a superstar. I felt like I was sitting in front of like a beam of light (laughs) that was just there. And it's like, I see how she interacts with other people. And it's very, she sees you. And that's your opportunity to be seen and to see her back. And she allowed me to see her back as well. So I saw this human being in front of me that was like a kindred spirit. I didn't see Jill Scott, the superstar. Yeah. And so, and so of course, before that, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, wow, okay, what is this going to be like? What is, but then when we start talking, I'm like, wow, this, she's human. She's tried. My mom's in the kitchen. She want to say hi to my mom. She's like, put your mom on the phone. Let me say hi. Or she called me randomly one time while I was giving a student a trumpet lesson. And it came up Jill Scott on the phone. He was like, you going to answer that? I was like, yeah, I probably should. And I was like, I'm, I'm in a lesson. He said, oh, let me talk to him. Oh, wow. That's so mad cool. Exactly. After the lesson, he's like, yo, okay, I'm inspired. Especially he's like, y'all are so cool. I was like, man, she was just calling me to check on me. Like, how am I doing? And it's like that kind of beautiful. It's authentic. It's not created. And mm-hmm. it's this, it's similar with, with Wyclef Jean. When he discovered my music through a friend of his who was a mutual friend that worked at a label or something, they were like, man, you should check this dude out. And a few days later, he's calling me and he, he's like, I've been looking for you. I found you. And I'm like, I'm like, yo, I've been listening to the carnival since I was 12. Like to me, that's a pinnacle hip hop record. Yeah. You just, you mentioned that earlier in the interview. Yeah. How dope. And it's just, I'm, I'm on the phone with him and I'm just sitting here and I'm like, I can't believe it. First of all, just hearing his voice or hearing Jill Scott's voice on the phone is like so crazy because it's so ingrained in you from all the music that you've heard. And I'm just like, this is, this is crazy. Like I've positioned myself 
in a way that where these legends are coming to me and wanting to interact with me musically because they're like, no, we recognize what this is. We draw from this. You're a source. We want you involved in this. Like, mm -hmm. welcome to the tribe. Wycliffe's like, welcome to the tribe. Me and Jill Scott call each other tribe. Like, <laughs> it's really beautiful and really inspirational because, as you know, in your career, you can have a lot of doors closed and a lot of people say no. And a lot of times you, you can tell that it's th there's no deep connection or there's no deep interest in what you're doing. And then to turn around and have people as prolific as Jill Scott and Wycliffe be like, yes, like Listen. we just let's just talk, send me records, like let's create, let's build. It's like, yo, I literally send Wycliffe ideas and he sends ideas back. Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not. He's like, yo, just young Miles, check this out. I'm listening to this. What do you think about this? I'm like, this is a vibe. Have I you ever heard it. this? And then Jill is the same way. So it's so beautiful. And it's so like, I feel like I'm a part of this tribe now. And it's super you inspirational. Just lit up. <laughs> you have just, you just lit up. But imagine in those times of rejection, mm -hmm. especially in this industry, we get a lot of rejection. But imagine oh, yeah. in, in those times of rejection, had you put your trumpet down, no, you wouldn't have never. any stories to tell. Never. And the timing of when someone is supposed to take you under their wings, adopt you or. Yes. But now I don't want us to be in our craft looking for validation from people, but it feels good. Like you said, when the people that you've listened to who have shaped mm -hmm. your sound. Right. Take you under your wing and you get to call them friend. So, yes. Yeah. I, yes. That's exciting. I'm excited for you. I've had a lot of artists come to me to want to extract what I'm doing and add it to their music and things like that. And I'd never felt that way with Cliff and Jill Scott. It more felt like they wanted to create a bond creatively and musically. And that is super inspirational. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey everyone, I am so excited. The Black Effect is live. This April 27th, the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival is headed to Atlanta's very own Pullman Yards. Last year was incredible, and this year will be even more thrilling, especially with Nissan coming back along for the ride. Nissan is returning with some empowering activations to support Black excellence in the STEAM fields. Have a podcast idea you've been eager to share with the culture? Well, Nissan is back with a Pitch Your Podcast Lounge. You'll have the chance to record your podcast idea and have it shared with a Black Effect podcast network team. But that's not all. Nissan is taking the stage to spotlight some of the HBCU scholars from their own Thrill of Possibility Summit, Nissan's action-packed weekend of community building, mentorship, and professional development for HBCU scholars pursuing professions in STEAM. The Black Effect Podcast Festival is the event to be at. You won't want to miss this because no matter where life takes you, Nissan will dial up the thrill of your adventures. Visit blackeffect.com forward slash podcast festival for more details. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something we care deeply about here at Black Tech Green Money. State Farm Insurance also cares about the growth of black communities. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help provide financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. We want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. It also requires active sponsorship of programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements. 
along with funding programs like Project Ready, a national urban league program committed to educational achievement of black and brown youth that has awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to date. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Y'all are listening to, like you said, we talked about the rejection and things that happen or people that just, like you said, want to take right. <laughs> and not so back into you. And so I'm so happy that you found at least two people, <laughs> namely Wyclef <laughs> and Jill, that you can have that type of relationship with. The foundation of checking in is mental health, right? Mm-hmm. How yes. are you? I'm great. <laughs> I am light. I am grateful. I am thankful. And I find the more that I stay in that energy, the more light I feel I'm filled with and emitting. And these things sound simple, but being positive, being grateful for what has and has not yet happened or what you desire to happen, making sure that I'm injecting myself with the love that I require instead of looking for it externally, all keep me in a way moving forward and sane mentally. Yeah. Because it's crazy out here. (laughs) Listen, it's crazy in these streets. I'm sure I've got some young musicians listening. And y'all, Theo, I'm telling you, he lit up. (laughs) But he also told the story of a young man whom he was giving trumpet lessons to and how that young man was able to get some inspiration, not only from Theo, but from Jill Scott. Right. What words of inspiration do you have for some young musicians that are listening right now? Uh, first, let me say thank you for asking me how I'm doing. Yeah. And I, I hope you are doing well also. Are you? I am doing well. <laughs> I'm doing well. When I tell you it's a daily practice, even talking about the word positive and how mm-hmm. making sure that you're feeling your feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it doesn't make you less positive if you say, man, today is today and, <laughs> you know, or it's it's kind of a difficult day, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm allowing myself that doesn't mean I've fallen into a depression or anything like that, because that's been my journey. I've dealt with depression for a number of years. But when I tell you, it's been a joy. Life has been, I would say, it's a lot going on in our world. But I try to maintain my peace as much as I can, Theo. So thank you I for love it. asking me. No, of course. <laughs> to expand on that with speaking to a, a, mm-hmm. a younger musician, because I think this is important. I think it's very important to keep a strong mind and to keep a strong vision for yourself and to not let any one or anything dissuade you from that strong mind and to make sure that you're building your mind as much as your talent. Part of that is also being patient. Be patient for the things that will come to you. You don't need to chase everything. You simply need to create the right conditions for these things to enter into your life. (laughs) And, um, you know, study your craft, whatever it may be. And whatever you're choosing to focus on, study it. That doesn't mean, just for an example, if you're going to be a gospel singer, you need to understand theory and harmony. No, you just make sure you know your music. Make sure, make sure yeah. you make sure you know your craft. You know, I'm not interested in a dentist knowing how my foot works. I just want to make sure he knows what to do with my teeth. So <laughs> it's very important to stay focused and to just take every no as a level up yeah. so that you're ready for the yes. You create the conditions to cultivate what it is you desire. And you do that with hard work and focus and make sure you love yourself. Yeah. 
And you said some things that can be consistency, learning your craft. It shouldn't be boring, but let me admit, sometimes being consistent is boring. Yeah, I agree. You're doing the same thing, same thing, same thing, but Mm -hmm. you do get results from consistency more than procrastination ever will. Even do it afraid, doing it unsure. I can say this. This is more of a technical answer. You can practice seven hours a day incorrectly and get nowhere, but you can focus for 10 minutes on one thing, 10 minutes, just like meditating. You can practice on one key, one scale, one melody of a song for 10 minutes and do wonders. So if I have to learn a new song or memorize a melody before a show, I know that I can just focus for 15 minutes on that melody and not think about all this other stuff going on. Not think about the chord changes, not think about the rhythm, not think about the tempo, not think about the band. Just be like, do I know this melody? So that I can go on the stage and just let that out. So that 10 minutes of super focused practice, you know, if you're playing the trumpet, like, is your air moving correctly? Are your lips in the right position? Are your fingers correctly on the button? Doing that for 10 minutes is better than hacking away for hours trying to make something sound good. Got it. And that applies to everything in life, you know? (laughs) Say less. As they say, he told me, he told you. Listen, y'all, I'm excited. Apple Music did a cool thing on you, Theo Croker Influences. Oh, dope. I have to read this. Okay. It says, Theo Croker's take on jazz is so excitingly original that it's no surprise the New York-based trumpeters been impacted by every corner of modern music. Afrobeat, 80s boogie, 90s hip-hop, UK down-tempo, the LA beat scene, classic funk, fusion, and electro, it's all in there. And that doesn't even touch on the traditional jazz that fuels his creativity. <laughs> Let's go. Thank when you, I Apple. I tell you, it goes on. It names some of my favorites, Tony Williams, Fela, Flying Lotus, Roy Ayers. Of course, I mean, so many. So y'all not only get into his album, which I'm so excited about it, Love, Quantum. Yes. And check out this playlist, though. I love getting into the minds of what a great musician, what his influences are. And thank you so much for checking in. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle, and allowing me to check in. Man, listen, you are welcome anytime. Once you come on one time, you're welcome to come in and talk about anything. We can talk about theory again. We can talk about energy again. Oh, yes. Self-love, because to hear a Black man talk about (laughs) self-love... It's beautiful. It's important for us to to learn, to fill in the gaps that our our elders were not able to. Things are crazy in the world today, no doubt, but it's only gotten less crazy for us. And it's only opened up more opportunity for us to learn how to take care of ourselves and share with one another. And, you know, that's how you really build a strong community. So we got to do that. Absolutely. So important. Thanks again, Thea. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Michelle. Bless. Wow, y'all, wasn't that a brilliant, just beautiful, pure conversation? I hope y'all have been enjoying the podcast. I cannot continue to do what I do weekly without y'all's love and support. How y'all have been subscribing? Listen, I'm excited about how much it has been growing. Again, please check out Love Quantum. He's on Instagram simply at 
Theo Croker. Just a beautiful soul. And I just love how he lit up talking about the one and only Jill Scott Timujin. I know that is your girl. She's my girl too. All right, I hope y'all are having an amazing, amazing day. Just know that you're loved. And listen, there's nothing you can do about it. What you gonna do about me loving you? All right? All right, take care. Checking In with Michelle Williams is a production of iHeartRadio and The Black Effect. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, everyone. It's our favorite time of the year here at the Black Effect. We're heading to Atlanta for the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival, and we're not going alone. Nissan is back as our partner, and they're continuing their Pitch Your Podcast Lounge at the festival, where you'll have the opportunity to pitch your podcast idea live and share it with the Black Effect team. So get those podcast ideas ready. And remember, you can count on Nissan to dial up the thrill in your adventures, no matter where life takes you. Visit blackeffect.com forward slash podcast festival for more details.